In 1887 alone, there were over 200 boys that were housed in either San Quentin or Folsom's prisons that were under the age of 21. Many of their crimes were burglary, vagrancy, or, worst crime of all, being an orphan. They were treated in the same ways as the more serious offenders. They worked alongside hardened criminals and their futures looked bleak. With no formal education, they were taught by the men they worked beside each and every day. And this education wasn't necessarily along the lines of, grow up and you'll make something of yourself, but more likely, don't get caught, therefore becoming a part of the revolving door to the penal system. Commit the crime, receive the punishment, and back again. This was their life, and it didn't look like it was going to get any better. Some would eventually come back to those dark gray walls, never to taste freedom again. Thankfully, the state recognized that they were quite possibly creating more criminals than curing and decided for the sake of the future of California, something needed to be done. And from this came a castle. Far from the dark gray halls and thick bars and cuffs, a castle for boys. Boys to grow into disciplined men. In 1894, the Preston School of Industry opened its doors to its first seven teens. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The 55,000-square-foot building took four years to build. The school's namesake, Edward Myers Preston, would eventually become a state senator of California, introduced the idea, suggesting the reform school, therefore becoming the president of the board of trustees presiding over the school. The Preston School of Industry had high hopes of purging the wards of their deviant behaviors before they became ingrained. And, according to California legislation, this was done through physical labor, education, and discipline. Idleness is the devil's tool, after all. Even though some of the boys had done nothing more than be a burden on society, there were others mixed into the group who had been committed to the school under charges of assault, repeated theft, rape, and murder. When the school first opened, its reform regiment was divided into three areas. Physical labor slash industry, military training, and education. The school was planning to become self-sufficient. It grew its own crops, the boys made their own shoes and clothes, they learned carpentry, plumbing, and electrical work, they had cattle for beef and dairy, they had a cooking department, accounting and bookkeeping department, and a housekeeping department, and more. Yes, Edward Preston had big dreams for this place. His boys would beat the system and make names for themselves as solid citizens. Maybe the rest of the world had given up on these young men, but not Preston. And he knew exactly who would work alongside him to get this job done. He would need someone with the same kind of vision and passion. E. Carly Bank would be the first hand-picked superintendent of the Preston School of Industry. He and his wife moved to the area, and Bank started to work in November before the school officially opened. 
He took to the first tenants right away. He and his wife welcomed them into their lives like family. The number of wards, as they were called, grew quickly, but it was working. They created a system, an onboarding system. When the boys first got there, they were with all the other new kids, so the staff could get an idea of their personalities, likes, and dislikes. They'd get them set up in their future vocation, and after a few months, they would be integrated into their new group. Discipline was very important. The groups were busy from the moment they woke up and were eager for their beds by the end of the day. They did their schoolwork for four hours and their vocation for four hours. They also had chores they had to do and extracurricular choices like band, football, basketball, and others. The young men had a sense of purpose. They had stability, routine, and security. And then... One change in the structure, and the whole thing begins a downward spiral. In May of 1897, Carl Bank was removed as superintendent. This was a man who devoted his whole life to the institution and rearing of these wards. There was no misconduct charges on his record, in any state he worked in, actually. He was terminated on the accusations of, quote, disgruntled employees. End quote, but none ever surfaced. It turned out that it was all done to pave the way for an Edward Stephen O'Brien. I couldn't really find out where he came from or why he wanted this position so badly, but apparently he had friends in high places. Preston fought to keep Bank in the superintendent position, but the vote was in favor of O'Brien two to one. Preston would go on record as saying, quote, this is the first time politics has entered into the management of the school. I regard it as unfortunate for the school and for the state. I do not know that the newly appointed superintendent has any experience in the management of reformatory institutions. I think that question was not considered. End quote. The new superintendent O'Brien took the school in another direction. Under his reign, the press would begin to refer to Preston School of Industry as the Preston School of Scandal. By November of his first year, he was called a tyrant, inflicting abuse and ruling with an iron fist. Seven people, both employees and wards, filed petitions for his removal. Statements that O'Brien, quote, flogged a boy until his flesh peeled from his back, end quote. Or that he, quote, lashed a boy until he exhausted him to the ground, end quote. Ward Nicholas Hamilton died May 17, 1898. His records show that the cause of death was tuberculosis, but his death came only six months after an abusive altercation with O'Brien, and the press had heard of his story. The Ward A. Asensio was a very documented case. H.R. Bernard submitted a signed affidavit against O'Brien for the abuse of Asensio. A portion reads, quote, I was called upon one evening to report immediately to the superintendent's office and rushed in to find Dr. O'Brien wildly excited and beating a Asensio over the head and face with a cane, which soon broke. He continued his blows with the part left in his hand, which was also broken a moment later from the force of the blows. Then the doctor grabbed a pole, 
about four feet long and proceeded to belabor the yelling lad over the body. The force of the blows were terrific. End quote. Now, why he wasn't taken off the board and then put in jail immediately is beyond me. Because that's just a small portion of Mr. Bernard's affidavit. He goes on to talk about his rage and temper, saying, quote, He who cannot govern himself must not expect to govern others. End quote. He would also go on to say, quote, O'Brien's egotism persuaded himself that he is indispensable and harbors under the hallucination that, as he expressed it, he is a stone wall and cannot be removed. End quote. And here's the thing he was right. O'Brien was not removed even after six other witnesses came forward explaining the abuse and torment that was happening. The Board of Trustees for the school exonerated him of the charges of cruelty and unnecessary severity to inmates. He was, however, asked to resign, and even though he agreed, he threatened to sue the state if they accused him of anything further or painted him in a scandalous way. The damage had been done. The trust had been broken. For the remainder of the school being in operation, it would continue to be plagued with poor role models. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. Can I just be real a second? I live full-time, on the road, in a camper. And because I choose this life, I do need to take extra care when it comes to my safety. I would hate to have to give up my dreams that I've worked so hard to reach because I didn't take these few extra steps. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, they made it easy for me to take extra precautions for my own personal safety. I started purchasing Damsel in Defense products and I love the way they are made. They're not bulky or hard to use, and they really have my safety in mind. They didn't break the bank either. And bonus, they come in all kinds of colors, styles, and even some sparkle. Thanks to them, I am free to roam about this great country and feel safe knowing that I have some sort of safety device within arm's reach or on my person. If you do not have at least one method of self-protection with you or around you, I urge you to check out our exclusive page, www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones, and take responsibility for your safety so you can enjoy life. I am proud to have them in the Bag of Bones family, and you'll love them too. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. By the time the Depression hit, the school was overwhelmed with wards and underfunded with basic necessities. The daily staff was taken down to the bare minimums, many of the sports programs were dropped, and the stories of poor care for the inmates continued to deteriorate. But budget cuts took away from the many aspects of teaching self-sufficiency as well, such as letting go the vocational instructors, refusing to replace expired, broken, or outdated equipment. The boys had too much time on their hands, and there was no way for them to write the intended course. With sometimes up to 900 wards on a minimal staff, there was not a whole lot of reforming going on at the reform school. 
the best of intentions turned into just another correctional institution. Gone were the ideals of training them up to have a trade that they could be proud of. Instead, it was a place of heavy-handed punishments and tall walls and fences to keep them out of the way until their parole was up and they could fill that bed with another number. Mm, I mean, ward. It's no wonder they wanted to escape, and many tried. Some succeeded, others were recaptured, still others were killed. The first shooting victim was Joseph Morgan in 1899. He was attempting to escape and the guards caught up with him. The story goes that someone called out not to shoot, but they did anyway. The wounds proved to be fatal and he died off campus in Sheldon, California. In 1911, Herman Huber and another ward, John Curran, attempted to escape while the staff was busy gathering everyone for dinner. A night guard initiated pursuit. J.D. French would tell the authorities that he raised his gun to fire a warning shot and accidentally hit the teen. And for a while, that story held. But a ward, Ernest Reed, would later go to the governor and tell what he saw. He claimed he witnessed French shoot Huber in cold blood. When asked why he didn't come forward earlier, Reed told stories of the beatings and abuse that was happening. He showed the governor the scars on his back from his own punishments and knew that it would be worse if he came forward while he was still in custody. In 1919, Sam Goines had had enough and he was on his way out. Several guards were chasing him and one aimed his gun at his leg to stop the inmate. However, at that same time, Sam had tripped and the trajectory of the bullet ended up taking his life. They rushed him to the hospital, and he lived long enough to absolve the guard, saying that he takes the blame. He knew it was his fault that he got shot. And keep that name in mind, as it's going to come up later in our story. And our final escape attempt came in 1924. Ray Baker opted out for trying to be sneaky and just went straight for the throat of Thomas Dooley, who was the guard that night. They fought as Baker tried to keep a tight grip around Dooley's neck. Dooley was finally able to reach for his gun and point and shoot Ray Baker dead. Thomas Dooley was absolved of any wrongdoing, acting solely in self-defense. At this point in our timeline of our story, we have begun to stack up quite a few deaths. There are only 18 boys buried in the cemetery that are accounted for, and there may be more, but the records are hard to track down and have been shuffled around quite a bit, and even some have been destroyed. Accidentally or on purpose, we may never know. But there are more than a few unexplained deaths that have occurred over the 70-plus years the castle was the reform school. According to several reports, many of the boys arrived at the school malnourished, a laundry list of bruises, fractures, and abscesses, and then there were just some that were very ill. During that time frame, illnesses like typhoid, tuberculosis, cholera, scarlet fever, and even influenza were rampant and unable to be contained. For the families that came to retrieve the bodies of their brothers and sons, there is no record. So the death toll can be almost anything. But for those 18 boys, their bodies were unclaimed and so they were given a space in the cemetery on the grounds. There are others buried elsewhere on the property and no one really knows why, but there are also two boys that are buried in a sewage trench because of an accidental cave-in. 
Six boys were initially assigned to the task of digging the sewer ditch on the property. All six were buried alive, but four were able to be rescued with only minor injuries. But the other two were crushed under the weight of the dirt and rock of the 16-foot deep trench in 1928. There has been a drowning, a few documented suicides, several deaths due to illness, but then there were the darker cases. On February 7, 1912, a 20-year-old inmate stabbed a 14-year-old inmate. No other details on this case were available, but sometimes there is a fate worse than death. The inmates would refer to it as living death. Author and screenwriter Ernest G. Booth, who was an inmate at Preston in 1915, he was 17. He would later write his autobiography, Stealing Through Life, in 1929, and would talk openly about the terrible conditions and brutal punishments they would endure. He writes, quote, With fifty other boys, I was herded into an ill-lighted basement each evening. There we sat, on our benches, for three hours, often deprived of all reading material, because of some petty annoyance had, in reprisal, had been put upon the officer in charge of us, end quote. He would also bring to light the sexual abuse that was forced on the younger wards by the older. His book reads, quote, In the dormitories, pedohebophilia was nightly practiced. The night watchman seemed indifferent. For weeks he would do no more than chase an amorous older boy from the bed of some youngster. Then, waxing virtuous, he would deliver a tirade against all boys who even thought about such practices. While the boys stood at their respective bedsides, naked, he would walk about and lecture us on the evil of our ways. End quote. Leland Price died in December of 1924 when someone thought that the best way to handle two boys fighting would be to lock them in a basement overnight. Only one of the boys emerged in the morning. Leland was found bludgeoned on his head and in a coma. He eventually died from his injuries. In 1925, 13-year-old Billy Forrester would be sent to Preston after he brutally murders a small child. And I mean brutal. His records indicate that he did arrive, and he also has a few other notes, so presumably he served his time. But when it came around for him to be released on parole, there is no record of him. It's like he just disappears. And maybe that's what they wanted to happen. But if so, when exactly did it happen, and what did they tell his family? So, I've only covered the tip of the iceberg as far as the deaths are concerned, and there's a million reasons why there might be trapped spirits here. But this last case was one that put Preston Castle on the map. The Brutal Murder of Anna Corbin this is a woman who devoted her life to the school and the boys, especially after her husband passed away. She was loved by the staff and the wards, and she did what she could to bring some light and love to the dark and heavy world that was now Preston Castle. It was 1950, and Anna happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm going to skip the hearsay and the trial and deliver what I dug up but I will preface it by saying that no one was ever convicted for her brutal death. And as was mentioned in the previous story, the truth, or as close to it as we will find, 
was not revealed until the witness was paroled and free from Preston and finally came forward. By this time, there had been a trial and the accused went free. The story goes like this. Anna's office is in the basement. Now, before you think of the dark and creepy basement of other Bag of Bones episodes, this was not that. This was a very active level of the building. Nothing creepy or basementy feeling about it. Well, then, anyway. She apparently walked in on two boys who were, um, doing things they shouldn't be doing in the storeroom. These two boys were Eugene Monroe and William Mercer. I do not know the time span after she caught them, but on February 23, 1950, Anna Corbin was found dead in the storeroom of the basement. From what I can piece together, her office was across the room from this 16 by 30 foot screened room. She was late for a meeting with her co-workers and Lillian McDowell and a ward, Robert Hall, went to search for her. They found a trail of blood leading from Anna's office to the storeroom. The padlock had been pulled shut and locked and blood was on the lock and the doorframe. They found her lifeless body buried under rolls of carpet. She had been bludgeoned in the head and was strangled from behind with a cord. Her undergarments were removed, but she had not been raped. By the time she had been discovered, she had been dead for about three hours. After a long and grueling lockdown, where all of the wards were questioned, only one name came out on top. Eugene Monroe. Prior to Monroe's burglary conviction that sent him to Preston, he was also the main suspect in a murder that looked very similar to this. And then, the testimony of William Mercer. He told the jury, when this case went to trial, that he was in the basement and was in a relationship with Monroe. When Mrs. Corbin walked in and saw them, she threatened to expose them. Mercer went on to say that he saw Monroe strike Mrs. Corbin in her office, but ran away and did not witness the actual murder. The case was tried three times. Twice the jury was hung, and on the third time, Monroe was acquitted. The Preston School of Industry would close its doors less than ten years later. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones. And I have to tell you, I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job, and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. The Preston Castle has been investigated by every major ghost series on television and even more on their own YouTube channels, and every one of them will tell you that there are definitely spirits left behind. By 1960, the doors of Preston School of Industry had been locked, 
The reformatories have been relocated to newer, more modern facilities, and the original 120-room, five-story castle went dark. It was the intention of the state to demolish the building, but a small group of very persistent women campaigned to keep it standing. The state finally gave in, saying that they wouldn't tear it down, but they're not going to supply any resources to help it stay standing either. During the school's operation, while it was struggling and its funding had been cut, it was literally being stripped of the valuable roofing material that was to be used in the other buildings, thus intensifying the decay and deterioration. And so, for the next 40 years, it sat, decaying and deteriorating. In 2001, a 50-year lease was given to the Preston Castle Foundation and they have slowly been, inch by inch, board by board, trying to put it back together again. In 2014, the foundation was given ownership of the building and slightly more than 12 acres that it sits on. The staff are all aware that it is haunted. They use it to their advantage to earn more funding. They don't have a problem renting out the building for a night, and there are plenty who take them up on it. Being the most publicized death, most ghost hunters are coming in seeking the ghost of Anna Corbin. The staff and the majority don't believe that she is there. But in all the videos I watched and all the recordings of EVPs I listened to, there are a lot of wounded souls still left behind. They believe that Samuel Goines is one of the active ones. Remember the boy from earlier who got shot? He's actually buried on the property, and many say that he is a spirit that wants to communicate. There's also Frank Cardarella. He died February 12, 1917. His body wasn't discovered for another two days after it had been dangling from a pipe in his cell. It's been insinuated that he had been suffering from seizures due to epilepsy, but there are no medical records of this. But on that night, the 12th of February, after one of his episodes, he was taken to his cell and left there. Left there for two days. He ripped his sleeping shirt into strips and then tying them together, he used it to hang himself on that first night. That sounds like the makings of a very unrestful spirit, if you ask me. One review from April of 2014 said, quote, I was there for an overnight investigation of the castle with a group from the Bay Area Ghost Hunters. Preston Castle has a long history of people saying it's haunted, and after my visit, I would have to agree. We were in the castle from 7 p.m. until 4 a.m. and covered most of the basement and the first three floors. The fourth floor is currently closed. I am reviewing my recordings of that night, and I'm hearing a lot of EVPs. End quote. There is no lack of activity. Orbs, moving furniture, footsteps, disembodied voices, physical contact as well. People have described their hair being pulled, pinches on the legs, brushing past their clothes. And those with the fancy schmancy talking boxes, they get messages that ask for help, and others say to get out and leave them alone. I mean, which is fair? How many times are they expected to answer the same questions? And they're always the same. For those spirits that come right out and ask for help, the people don't hear it until after they leave, so they really have no intention to help them. 
How frustrating must that be? And the ones that say get out and leave us alone, their audience just laughs. These people go in there asking to communicate with the spirits, but then don't even know that they already are. When they ask a question and the ghost answers it, then what? Nothing. They don't hear the answers until the next day. These poor ghosts have to do it all again the next night when the next group comes in with their fancy toys and asks the same questions again. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how you get a poltergeist. After a few decades, I can imagine many of them get a little cranky. So, you ghost hunters out there, what is it that you're actually trying to accomplish? Just get contact? Or do you really want to know the answers to your questions? I'm going to switch gears here and slip into a commercial before I end up creating a ghost advocacy chapter. And then, when we come back, I'll tell you one last story about a man who did spend some time at Preston, but did not die here. And you would not want to meet this ghost if he did. Hang tight. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. He became known as the Red Light Bandit. Carol Chessman would end up being one of Preston's most infamous inmates. In July 1937, Chessman was caught stealing a car and sent to Preston School of Industry. He was released in April of 1938, only to return a month later after stealing another car. His name can be found etched into the walls of solitary confinement and in the school's tower where he was detained for 90 days. The school said that he was so bad, there was nothing they could do for him. He acquired the name the Red Light Bandit after robbing cars when they stopped at a red light, or by using a red light when walking up to their windows and they gave him access, he robbed them. The red light crimes escalated to sexual assault and then kidnapping with sexual assault. He was sentenced to death on June 24, 1948, but managed to serve appeal after appeal that kept postponing the actual event for almost 12 years, acting as his own attorney. He won eight stays of execution, creating debates on capital punishment. His time ran out 35 days before his 39th birthday, when he was sent to the gas chamber in April of 1960. I believe he was the first prisoner sentenced to the death penalty that didn't actually kill someone. During his long stay at San Quentin, he was actually behind bars more than he was outside of them, he ran across the paths of other former Preston inmates. Merle Haggard, the country music legend, had gotten himself in a bad way by not taking the straight and narrow. His drug? Theft. But when he found himself in solitary in the same cell block as Carol Chessman, he began to realize the path that his life was going. When his partner in crime decided to shoot a police officer and was executed, Merle Haggard turned his life around and didn't look back. He went on to be an award-winning country music artist and claims that Johnny Cash's concert at San Quentin helped to change his life. Edward Bunker, who also met up with Chessman in one of their matching stays in jail, both had Preston history and Chessman encouraged Bunker with his writing. 
Bunker did take the advice and ended up selling the film rights to his first book, No Beast So Fierce, published in 1973, to Dustin Hoffman. Novelist James Elroy said his book was, quote, quite simply one of the great crime novels of the past 30 years, perhaps the best novel of the L.A. underworld ever written, unquote. Carol Chessman, who started his criminal career while in his teens, was only 27 when he was convicted of 17 counts of robbery, kidnapping, and sexual assault. He leaves behind the creation and publication of four books, one of which, Cell 2455 Death Row, was turned into a movie in 1955. All of his books are out of print and the original manuscripts have long been lost. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. If you are enjoying these weekly dips into the dark side of American history, I'd be most grateful if you could leave a 5-star rating and review that will make people click that subscribe button so fast and binge listen to all those past episodes. Yours could be that review that could make it all possible. If you are wanting to support the Bag of Bones podcast, you can click any of the links in the show notes and support our affiliate sponsors, or you can help out directly by purchasing a gallon of gas. You can buy one gallon or several to help keep me out on the road researching your next episode. Whichever you choose, I'd like to personally thank you. I love being here with you every week, and we can do it again next week if you'd like. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. I'll meet you right here again with the next story from my bag of bones. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.